Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. We are back with my good friend Peter Montgomery of the Right Wing Watch. It's been a while since we chatted, Peter. I see you shaved a little bit more since the last time we chatted, but my beard is growing a little bit longer. But welcome back to Mindshift Podcast. Thanks. It's great to be back. There's so much I want to ask you about. We talked before we hit record about some of the radical extremism that's gripping America, but we're actually here to talk about the recent, I guess you could say it's a leak. I don't know what that's about from the Supreme Court. Apparently, they're about to overturn Roe versus Wade, and I'm sure you know more about where the leak came from. It seemed like they're investigating that, but what do you know just generally on the face of it? Does it look like the Supreme Court is going to go ahead and overturn Roe versus Wade? Yeah, I think that seems very clear. You know, the, the leaked ruling that came out was uh, written as, the, as a majority ruling, and so that, that happens after they have a conference and they know where the justices are lining up. It was not written with any nuance. You know, in the past, they sort of chipped away at uh, access to abortion and allowed for the restrictions. This is a uh, full-throated denunciation of Roe and uh, repudiation and uh, overturning altogether. Mm-hmm. And of course, what's fascinating is this evangelicals, the, the, the posts I've read on Christianity Today and some of the other outlets, they're more concerned about the leak from the Supreme Court than the actual quote-unquote victory that they're about to start celebrating here with the overturning of Roe Ro versus Wade, which they've been fighting for decades to overturn. Why are they so up in arms about the actual leak itself? Well, the leak, I think, surprised a lot of people from the left and the right, because basically the, it's never happened. And and so the it does feel like in some ways a really upsetting of the, the way the court operates. And so a lot of people were surprised by that. But I do think that a lot of Republican officials and conservatives were caught off guard too, because they expected, they're hoping to win and they're expecting win, but they're expecting that at the end of June. And so this, the timing was off. People weren't really ready for their official celebrations. And some Republican officials weren't ready to deal with the backlash because the fact is most Americans support Roe v. Wade in spite of the progress that uh, the right has made in, in passing laws, you know, basically ignoring it and trying to invalidate it. So the, the, I think the timing of the leak really threw, threw off everybody's response. It seems like there's a lot of divided opinion as to what the purpose of the leak was, if indeed it was done on purpose. I've read articles that talked about, well, maybe it was to soften the blow to the public ahead of the actual decision, or maybe it was a case of bullying the Supreme Court you know, we're going we're gonna to leak this information out there. So now you better go ahead and, and make this ruling the way this leak seems to confirm, you know, what's the purpose of it? What do you think? What have you heard in terms of why it was leaked? Because clearly it couldn't have been an accident. Yeah. As far as I know, there's no evidence that's been released either way. So everybody's speculating. Mm. And my personal speculation would be that it's in spite of all the people on the right blaming one of the liberal justices or liberal clerks. I tend to agree with the theory that this was coming from someone from the hard right who wanted to cement the five vote majority because apparently people think maybe Chief Justice Roberts was more of wanting to go with some continued nuance rather than complete overturning. They didn't want him to be able to convince anybody before the ruling comes out. You know, Roberts sort of famously had apparently changed his mind late in the game on overturning Obamacare and that angered people on the right. So this might have been a a strategic move from the right to uh, say to those five on the majority, don't think about abandoning us. Mm -hmm. But who knows? Yeah, I was going to say, as we know, this is not a new story, this attempt to overturn Roe versus Wade. I mean, you could say, well, look at it just from the point of view of the Trump administration, the Trump era. So you have this 80, 81 percent white evangelical support base that voted for him in 2016. They were then rewarded for their ongoing support for him, their rabid support for him, I should say, with the appointment of not one, not two, but three conservative Supreme Court justices. You got Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and then at the last second, 
Amy Coney Barrett, now all these states have passed all these restrictive laws like Texas and Mississippi with a view, as I understand it, to challenge Roe versus Wade and say, well, now that we've got the majority of Supreme Court justices, we're going to go ahead and get this done. But the story goes a lot further back than that, surely, doesn't it? I mean, how far back does the anti-abortion movement go, would you say? Well, it goes back to, you know, the ruling itself. And you know, initially, opposition to the ruling was led by Catholic groups and the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Uh, late in the 70s, they were joined by white evangelicals, who uh, uh, white evangelical leaders who saw abortion as an organizing vehicle that they could uh, sell to the public and the churches as a reason to get more involved in politics. Uh, it was not, they were not there at the beginning. You know, at the beginning, the Southern Baptists supported Roe v. Wade and supported choice uh, mm. early on. So that was a, a political maneuver, but um, it became pretty aggressively uh, adopted as part of the right. And then the religious right, you know, made a very conscious move to try to take over working control of the Republican party. And as they did, they set out pretty much to purge pro-choice Republicans from the party. And so with very few exceptions now, there are almost no national level pro-choice Republicans in office because the anti-abortion movement has, mm. has effectively pushed them out of the party. Right. It's become a single vote issue, single choice issue. Um, it's just you, you're either pro-choice or pro-life and that's it. You know, you're anti-abortion. You're not going to ever be supported. And that's the thing. I've talked a lot to Frank Schaefer. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but sure. him, and his, him and his famous father, Francis Schaefer, of course, were part of the original founders and shakers of the anti-abortion movement, like he talked about. And I find it interesting. I read an article on Politico. I'm not sure if you read it by Dr. Randall Balmer, which is really an interesting one, something like the, the real origins of the Christian right, which is basically what you said. It really goes back to racism and segregation after Brown versus Board of Education. He picks up on all this, doesn't he, and says that it was the fact that places like Bob Jones University, which was a segregationist academy, Jerry Falwell founded a segregationist academy. Bob Jones University lost its tax-exempt status. I think it was 1971, something like that. And they, like you say, the organizers, people like Paul Wyrick approached Jerry Falwell uh, Sr. to say, look, you know, this is government infringement. This is, a, you know, infringing on your religious freedoms. But, you know, people weren't going to be going out there and supporting racist you know, <laughs> segregation academies. So abortion became that rallying cry that actually did mobilize Catholics and, and even Jews and evangelicals. So the whole thing is nowhere near the storyline that we've been sold, is it? Yeah, I think that's right. The storyline is always more complicated than the than the official mm -hmm. narrative, right? And yes, and you know, Jerry Falwell was. You know, it's interesting because this week is the anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education, where the a unanimous Supreme Court said that states could not enforce legal segregation in public education. And Jerry Falwell preached against that ruling. You know, he said mm -hmm. that those justices were not listening to God when they did that ruling, and so that was. You know, that was in the late 50s and they this massive resistance uh, continued in Virginia, specifically leading other states in resisting, you know, Brown versus Board. Uh, and then that went on all the way into the early 80s is when the Supreme Court finally ruled on Bob Jones. So that was a long haul. Mm -hmm. uh, meanwhile, when when the Bob Jones uh, decision came down and the Supreme Court said the federal government could withdraw charitable tax status to a racist institution. The one dissenting voice vote on the Supreme Court in that was William Rehnquist, who Reagan, a few years later, made chief justice. Mm, how interesting. <laughs> so there's another step in the court shifting to the right that got us to where we were exactly. today and back to Rome. Political machinations, for sure. And as I've researched this in preparation with talking to you, I'm thinking about this, this history of it. It seems like it's, there's kind of a two-pronged attack because, like you say, Jerry Falwell Sr., he was, he was sort of famous for saying things like, look, the minute Roe versus Wade was passed in 1973, I was angry, I was furious, I was in you know, righteous anger and all the rest of it, and I immediately organized and they had the you know, a March for Jesus and all these kind of things going on. And then they organized the moral majority in 1979. And from the beginning, I've been anti-abortion, which as we now know, is, is completely not true. It was years and years later, and it wasn't even about 
that at all. But on the one hand, you've had these radical groups like Operation Rescue and Army of God. They've actually you know, picketed abortion clinics, bombed abortion clinics, murdered and attacked abortion clinic workers and doctors. So that's on the one hand, sort of the extreme radical right. But what I didn't realize was that for decades, the other part, part of the evangelical Christian right, they've been chipping away at Roe versus Wade, chipping, 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 challenging it, challenging it, challenging it. So what can you tell us about some of these laws that have been passed over the decades, I guess you could say chipping away at Roe versus Wade? Yeah, so it's really this, it's the, you know, decades long campaign, they really took mm-hmm. the long view on this. It was both a political strategy and a legal strategy. The political strategy was to uh, push the Republican Party to the right on this issue and other issues by who got elected to office, who got elected into state legislatures. And then the legal strategy was to try to get Republican presidents to appoint the kind of judges that would overturn Roe v. Wade, that just didn't agree with Roe, that didn't agree with the right to privacy. And uh, over the years, those, those strategies were both successful. They were able to move the federal judiciary to the right and state legislators to the right, legislatures to the right. And then those came together with the national strategy to start pushing laws at the state level, chipping away, moving the timeline back further and further, um, passing greater and greater restrictions, and then moving those cases up to the courts, up through the conservative courts, up to the Supreme Court to try to get Roe overturned or to try to get the court to say, well, we're not going to overturn Roe, but we will allow you to restrict access this much. We'll allow you to put these kind of requirements on that'll make it harder to run abortion clinics. The right has had a long-term strategy of chipping away at Roe when they didn't have the votes in the court to do away with it altogether. But in the last several years, as they saw a majority in sight with Trump as president, they really had the state-by-state strategy to push uh, ever more restrictive bans to give the court an opportunity to take one of those cases as the opportunity to overturn Roe. Mm-hmm. And the, the case that they're using to do that comes out of Mississippi. And that was a law that was written by the Alliance Defending Freedom, the huge religious right mm-hmm. uh, legal group, who in 2018 at an Evangelicals for Life event that was held in conjunction with the annual anti-Roe v. Wade March for Life in Washington, D.C., they bragged about the fact they were just about to get this law passed in Mississippi and that it was part of their strategy for eradicating Roe. So this is not speculation. <laughs> mm-hmm. is, you know, they had a strategy. They wrote the law. They found legislators to pass it. And thanks to Trump, they have the majority uh, to do what they've been wanting to do. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it reminds me of the strategy behind the um, Operation Blitz, isn't it? Where you have these just a blitz of laws. A lot of them are test case studies in a way, aren't they? Just yes. throw them out there, throw them against the wall, see see what sticks, right? And then eventually, you know, some of them are going to get overturned, some of them are going to get rejected outright, or they're going to fail. But like you say, incrementally, they're going to just chip away at it to the point where, what was it, 2018, 2019, there was about 10, eight or 10 states that suddenly just out of nowhere, seemingly passed really restrictive anti-abortion laws and that that was argued in the courts and then you had texas and then mississippi i think is that the one you're talking about the dobbs versus women's health clinic one that's come up um and they're just throwing the stuff at the wall and seeing what would stick you know that seems to be their strategy doesn't it that was their strategy until they could get the majority on the court you know the interesting thing about amy coney barrett who you know was confirmed by the republican senate Days before Trump was voted out of yeah, office, minutes, I mean, they seconds, rushed, they rushed that through uh, to get her on the court before they lost the power to to name judges. And uh, you know, she had been the choice of uh, the Dominionist uh, evangelical right, who had declared actually a couple years ago that she had been anointed by God to be the the person who would go on the Supreme Court and overturn Roe. And some of them were actually so upset. They were so convinced that she was God's chosen that when um, it was Kavanaugh, wasn't... Kavanaugh for the previous one, yeah. they were furious because they thought that that was her role. And I think Trump was waiting, was frankly waiting for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to go so he could replace a woman with a woman mm-hmm. and have it be a woman uh, giving the final vote to, right. uh, to overturn Roe. 
would have been bad optics from his point of view or something. Not that he cared much about optics, almost anything. It's so ironic, of course, that when when Merrick Garland was put up for a nomination on almost the last year of Obama's presidency, they stonewalled him and stonewalled him and said, well, you know, we need more time. You can't rush these things through. The same voices who were saying that about Merrick Garland were, were suddenly supportive of Amy Coney Barrett getting shoved in there minutes or seconds before Trump left office. Yeah, it was, and it was even, it is even more unprincipled than that. You know, it was, it mm-hmm. was uh, Mitch McConnell, the head of the Senate Republicans, just saying flat out, I am not going to let the Senate consider Merrick Garland mm-hmm. for an entire year. He just used his, he abused his power as the Senate majority leader to say, we're not going to have hearings. We're not going to do anything. We're just not going to let the Senate, I'm not going to let the Senate consider this nominee. He basically stole that seat from Obama. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of Trump's term, of course, he was did the absolute opposite, rushed it through. Mm-hmm. And, and so yeah, all those fine sounding reasons, arguments. You know, when I uh, have talked to some people about how we got to the point where we're about to lose Roe v. Wade and everything that's going to come after, I said that there's three reasons. One, Trump won in 2016. Two, Senate Republicans went along with Mitch McConnell's unprincipled power plays. And three, they were both building on this 40-year campaign to uh, shift the Republican Party and to shift the courts. So mm-hmm. those really all have all come together, the long-term yeah. campaign and the consequences of the 2016 election. And it seems like, I, I mean, you may know more about this. I mean, wasn't it true that all these, because it wasn't just the Supreme Court justices. I mean, Trump appointed, I don't know what, a couple hundred judges on various yeah. federal bench levels. And as far as I understand it, they were just list handed to him more or less by the Federalist Society, the Heritage Foundation. I mean, they've been grooming some of these judges for years and they just had them on a list. Here, I mean, Trump didn't care about any of these judges. He's just paying somebody back for political favors. Is that kind of how it went down as you see it? That is exactly how it went down. You know, what happened was, you know, when Trump, you know, Trump was this crazy outsider when he decided to run for president, right? He, uh, when he surprised a lot of people by making it through the primaries and ended up as a Republican nominee, he knew that there was a lot of people in the party space who were skeptical of him. And, you know, evangelicals, especially here he is, you know, multi-divorced, adulterer, mm-hmm. amoral businessman. Yeah. So he knew he just had to make a deal. And he did. He got all these religious right leaders in a room. He said, if you elect me, I'll make you more powerful and I'll give you the judges you want. And I'll give you the judges that you want to overturn Roe v. Wade. And then he said, I'll pick my judges from a list that's pre-approved by the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society. And so that was that was all that the religious right leaders needed to hear. They went out and told all their you know, followers and their people who watch Christian television, they all got the message. Yes, you may not like Trump. Yes, you have reason to be skeptical. But Roe v. Wade is more important than anything else. You know, even um, a guy named uh, Samuel Rodriguez, who heads the um, largest group of uh, Latino evangelicals, the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, he had initially been very critical of Trump because, of course, Trump had had all this anti-immigrant, anti-Mexican-American rhetoric. But uh, after the primaries, Rodriguez told his people, the Supreme Court is more important than immigration. So it was really the Supreme Court and overturning Roe. Really, Trump's promise to do that had a lot to do with him uh, getting elected in 2016. Mm. And as we know, Trump, everything he did was deeply transactional, wasn't his whole the way he views relationships with pretty much everybody, I think, is on a deeply transactional level. He doesn't have like actual relationships like most of us have, you know, normal. It's every, what can you do for me? What will I do in return? As you say, I know Michael Cohen talks about that in his book, Disloyal, where he helped set up a meeting with Paula White Kane and a bunch of other evangelical charismatic dominionist types you mentioned back before he was where he was a candidate. I think it was in his, in his New York offices. And yeah, he essentially said that just, this is the deal I'm going to make you. If you back me, I'll give you what you want. And it's purely a transaction. And they went out and shilled for him. And here we are. <laughs> now we're in the shit, as they say. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, and he, he basically, it was as naked as possible. You know, he said to them, I will make you more powerful. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I wish I could remember the name. There was an uh, evangelical writer shortly before the election said, 
evangelicals should not take the deal that Jesus rejected. You know, referring to uh-huh. the time when uh, in the Bible, when Jesus was allowed to be tempted by Satan and Satan offered him all this worldly power and Jesus turned it down. But uh, these guys did not turn it down. How ironic. Now, you mentioned a dominionist angle. You talked about that in connection with Amy Coney Barrett. We, we were talking about this on Twitter the other day. I think we were tweeting back and forth, and you mentioned this dominionist angle. How much of this goes back to the dominionist Christian nationalist angle on the Christian right? Because I've been telling people for a long time that evangelicals, they see abortion as sort of a corporate national sin, a stain on America. One of the big things that's stopping well, A, America from becoming a Christian nation again, and then B, stopping God from blessing America. So it's so critical as they see it, as I understand it, that they overturn Roe versus Wade and deny abortion because purely that'll help, you know, turn America back into a Christian nation. And there's a dominionist piece as well. What, what would you comment on that whole aspect of it? There's absolutely a widespread belief that, that having legal abortion, that Roe v. Wade, having that on the books, is a curse on the nation and that that invites God's judgment and you know encourages God to lift his hand of blessing and that a lot of the problems we have in this this country are because we are no longer under his protection because of the curse of of Roe v Wade and legal abortion and so you know in the in the lead up to Trump's election there was you know a lot of dominionist uh, rallies on the national mall you know calling to support Trump's election but also pitching his election and then his re-election in 2020 as necessary for national spiritual renewal revival, mm-hmm. and that that revival was you know necessary to um, usher in the end times harvest, this billion times soul. So not for all of the religious right, but this dominionist wing, this Pentecostal wing, they really saw it not only in in achieving this political goal, but that getting Trump reelected and overturning Roe was part of helping to speed the return of, of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the time in which they, the church, will rule and reign with him over the, over the earth. And this is something I think we're seeing the language of dominionism is just, it's infiltrating not only the Christian right, and they're not the charismatic part of, of evangelicalism. It's filtering down into mainstream evangelicalism. Because I read a quote the other day, it was in a piece by Catherine Stewart, and she was quoting someone who worked for the Family Research Council. I mean, that is not a charismatic organization. It's part of the focus on the family. It's a political action group and all the rest of it. But yet this the spokesperson for the FRC said something like, if we can just you know get these Supreme Court justices appointed, we'll, we'll win the seven mountains of influence sort of thing. You think, whoa, here's a guy who's from the Family Research Council spouting seven mountains mandate dominion theology in connection with these three supreme court justices and obviously overturning roe versus wade yeah that's one of the most interesting things to me about the rhetoric of the seven mountains dominionists is that it really did get adopted by the rest of the religious right people like tony perkins at the family research council and other parts of you know fundamentalist evangelicals who really do not accept a lot of the theology of the Pentecostal wing. They do not accept the theology that about the end times and about you know, human action you know, having an effect on when Christ comes back. But they recognized that the language of Seven Mountains Dominionism was a really strong motivator mm-hmm. to getting people more involved in politics. So they've adopted that rhetoric even without necessarily buying the underlying theology. And it's, it is, really has been kind of this lingua franca now across the religious right to talk about uh, getting the right kinds of Christian on top of those mountains of influence or spheres of influence, Mm -hmm. some of them say. But you're right, it's really, um, it's become a a tool for mobilizing political involvement Mm -hmm. uh, among conservative Christians. It's a great strategy, isn't it? I think too, it appeals to the garden variety evangelical in the sense that you could say, well, oh, okay, you're not going to be scaling the mountain of politics. Don't worry about that. Your your sphere is business or arts or media or entertainment or whatever the other, you know, education. That's your thing. And there was a there was a quote the other day from Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council. In fact, it was on the Right Wing Watch website. He was being interviewed by somebody and he was talking about the connection of Christians taking over their local school boards and becoming Christian, you know, Christians becoming teachers and administrators in 
public or government schools. And that's language straight out of Rush Dooney's sort of views on dominionism, wasn't it? Government schools and all the rest of it. And you think, okay, this is this is a classic aspect of the Seven Mountains mandate, isn't it? If you're a Christian teacher, you want to go work in a public school and you can kind of Christianize that school, but you don't want to send your kids to that public school, that government school. You should homeschool them. You should, you know, or send them to a Christian school, you know, so it's this, you see that coming out in, in even places like the Family Research Council. That's absolutely right. And, you know, this campaign to sow distrust among conservatives and Christians, particularly toward public schools is a very long-term campaign. Mm-hmm. And, and this, this year they've really cranked it up with this you know, fear-mongering about so-called critical race theory, uh, you know, supposedly infiltrating schools and indoctrinating students, you know, kind of a renewal of the long-term smears against uh, LGBTQ teachers and um, LGBTQ affirming programs in schools. And so they're really ramping that up uh, in an effort to discredit public education to get public funds moved from public educations into uh, religious schools and to uh, homeschooling parents, you know, who buy the you know dominionist uh, curricula for their kids. But yes, but they're still saying. But on top of all that, we want to indoctrinate kids in public school too. Exactly. Yeah, it's true. And I think Catherine Stewart does a good job in her book, The Good News Club, talking about. It's a stealth assault. Some of it isn't so stealthy, though. It's, it's an outright assault because I was just reading on Facebook a couple of mornings ago. I've got a friend of mine who lives in the Portland, Oregon area, and he's a pastor. He's still an evangelical, but he's, he's fairly progressive. He went to a local public school board. His children go to a local public school there in the Portland area. And he was saying what, what really struck him about it was there was a group of white evangelical parents who were just ranting and raving at this school board. And we've seen loads of videos, haven't we? Shot on people's phones and everything else of these Christians ranting and railing at public school board meetings. And it was all this, the, those topics you just, you know, raised, critical race theory. And it was COVID a few, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, mask mandates and vaccines and everything else. And they're getting all this. It's like a, a, an echo chamber, the media and everything else. They're all the stuff they're feeding on. That's just the people on the ground level. It seems like they're being influenced by the sort of top brass, the people like the Tony Perkinses of the world and and James Dobson and others like that. I mean, those seem to be the generals of these organizations, don't they? Yeah, and there's there's a a huge investment being made by right-wing groups in the the U.S., political groups. Uh, FRC is one of them, the Leadership Institute, to train people to run for school board this year and to try to take over the school boards. And then you have some religious right pastors and dominionist pastors sort of uh, running similar operations on a more local level. There's a guy we follow named Andrew Womack, who is trying to run a bunch of people to take over um, school boards in Colorado. Rick Scarborough is trying to do the same thing in Texas. So it's happening both at the local level and the national level. And that's just one strategy. That's one mountain, the mountain of education. We've got business and everything else. And it's, it's also about building power because mm-hmm. getting elected to your school board, is like the first step on the rung. And then a lot, to, a lot of times people use that as a stepping stone to run for mayor or state legislature. So it's, it's not only actually getting the power to dictate what kids can read and learn. And we're seeing a huge revival of book bans and book burning that goes along with this movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it also creates the bench for having greater power on the government mountain. By, mm-hmm. by working your way up the mountain uh, using that political uh, stepping stone. And they'll use whatever they have to use. I mean, this is something, again, going back to Catherine Stewart. I just talked to her a little bit ago for an episode. And what she's uncovering now is that these Christian right organizations are motivating the, the base, if you will, the, the garden variety evangelical to get out and vote in the midterms in 2024. And the new storyline is election integrity, election fraud. So they're essentially pushing Trump's big lie. It hasn't gone away. It hasn't died down. And they're saying, listen, if you care about election integrity and election fraud, then you better get out and vote for your, you know, our preferred candidates, the next midterm and and certainly the presidential election. Have you seen more of that where they're actively pushing the big lie? Absolutely. And that really is evidence that this is, this is all about power. Mm -hmm. All of it is really about power and that power will, you know, lead to dominion. So the election integrity stuff is 
is kind of under the radar because it's also seen as such a partisan issue, right? That it's Trump's big lie, that Republican legislatures are using the big lie as justification to pass uh, voter restrictions. So I think the religious right angle kind of slips under the radar, but Catherine Engelbrecht, who runs one of these groups called True the Vote, which uh, supports you know, voting restrictions and buys into Trump's conspiracy theories about the election. You know, she went on one of the prayer calls with the sort of pro-Trump group of prayer warriors, and she described what she was doing as spiritual warfare, that this is spiritual warfare to stop vote by mail because uh, this is for taking control of the free world. And mm. the Arizona audit, so-called audit, that got a lot of attention but because it was this crazy group of Trump supporters who were hired by Republicans in the state legislature in Arizona who were convinced that the Arizona election was fraudulent and it was stolen from them. And they, they had these people who had no idea how to audit election things going in there and messing with the machines. And it was a mess. But it also turns out, you know, based on the guy who ran that, you know, Cyber Ninjas, went on another one of these pro-Trump prayer warrior shows and talked about how the Arizona audit was part of spiritual warfare and that they had, you know, a prayer wall and they had people coming to Jesus while they were there doing the audit. So it's it's really part of every part of this movement. But in the end, didn't the cyber ninjas find actually more votes for Joe Biden in Arizona? I think, wasn't that the end of their so-called audit? I seem to recall that's kind of, they kind of slunk away with their tail between their legs. They did. They haven't given up. They sort of found that, yeah, I think they found that Biden had actually won a bigger victory, but they sort of yeah. raised questions because that was their face-saving measure to say, those are these questions that need to be investigated. And so some of the, you know, there's a lot of uh, far-right Republicans in Arizona, and some of them are continuing to try to investigate. But, you know, there's, there's, there's been a lot of looking, and there's no evidence. Mm -hmm. that that they were looking for bamboo fibers in the, in the paper and the ballots and everything. When we come back in the second half of this conversation with Peter Montgomery of the Right Wing Watch, we're going to get into, again, this issue of not just the overturning of Roe versus Wade, but I want to ask Peter, what are some of the implications of this decision in terms of the erosion of our rights, especially if you live in the United States? But even then, if you don't live in the States, you should still be concerned because, of course, as we know, the Christian right is making massive inroads and has been doing for decades now into other countries as well, pushing their dominionist agenda. So it's not certainly limited just to the United States. You should be very, very concerned because this is a long-term strategy, as we've discussed. This is not something that just came about in the last couple of months or even the last few years in the Trump era. They have been chipping away, not just at Roe versus Wade and abortion laws, but of course, they have an agenda to do away with same-sex marriage, trans rights, other progressive gains that have been so hard fought and hard won over the decades. We're actually on a slippery slope, believe it or not. So we're going to get into some of that in the second half. I just wanted to let you know what's coming up here in the next few episodes here on MindShift Podcast. I've already had a conversation just the other day with Jen Senko. She's, of course, the author of the book and, of course, the documentary, The Brainwashing of My Dad. And it's fascinating to me that if you look at this whole thing in context, in the bigger picture, there's really an agenda on the part of the religious right as well as the ultra-conservative right, the Republican Party. It's all about flooding the public with misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories, and so forth. And the Christian right is part and parcel of that, the Christian media. And this is something that Jen Senko and I are going to get into. Of course, her book, her documentary is all about how her father was basically brainwashed, radicalized by listening to the likes of Rush Limbaugh and then getting into Fox News and other far-right media. And now we're seeing that that's spread even further into QAnon. And then speaking of which, speaking of QAnon, I just finished reading Mike Rothschild's book on QAnon's called The Storm is Upon Us. And I reached out to Mike and we're going to be talking. We've got a booked interview on the 6th of June and that episode is going to be coming out just after the one with Jen Senko. And I'm interested to talk to Mike because he's an expert not just on conspiracy theories in general, but specifically on the rise of QAnon, how it's infiltrated 
the Republican Party and the evangelical world, and we saw it all kind of come together at the January 6th insurrection. We saw Christian nationalism, we saw militia groups, and we saw QAnon t-shirts, placards, posters, all over that insurrection. So all these forces have come together, and it's all somehow part and parcel of the far-right media machine that Jen Senko has done such a good job of detailing in her book. I would highly recommend both of those books if you want to find out more information as to what's going on. And then finally, speaking of Jen Senko, she's coming back on the 19th of June. This is going to be our final MindShift Zoom call for the summer before we take our break. So how can you get on that call with Jen Senko? You can support the show on Patreon, and the links to that, as always, are in the show notes. If you want more information, you can become part of our closed MindShift Podcast Facebook group, as well as getting early access to the episodes on Wednesdays before they drop everywhere else on Fridays. And, of course, as I mentioned, you'll be a part of those MindShift Zoom calls that we hold every month, usually about the second or third Sunday of the month, and we also have closed patrons-only calls around about the first Sunday of the month, although we're taking a break for the summer on those right now. So let's get on back into this conversation with Peter Montgomery of the Right Wing Watch, looking at this issue of power that leads to dominion, the overturning of Roe versus Wade. What are the implications moving on down the road for the erosion of our rights, of our progressive gains? And if you're not concerned by now, you definitely will be in the second half. Let me know your thoughts, comments, questions. You can send me a message on Twitter. You can follow me at MindShift2018 or look me up on the Public MindShift Podcast Facebook page. All right, let's get on back into the second half of this conversation with Peter Montgomery. But this is the thing. I hope people listening kind of get this idea that okay, we're going back to the Supreme Court. It's not just about overturning Roe versus Wade. That might be the sharp end of the spear right now. That's what's getting the news because I'm reading all these articles on online and stuff and they're, they're, people are weighing in about it's a violation of women's rights, reproductive rights, and, and it's all true. But yet it's just all part of a much bigger strategy, isn't it? By the Christian right to Christianize America, to take dominion over the world. This is now the question, though. Okay, look, let's say that the Supreme Court does overturn Roe versus Wade. What's next? You hinted at that a little bit ago. What other things could be overturned? Because one of the things going along with abortion is they've they've been fighting against the so-called homosexual agenda. That That's another big plank in the platform. What about those kind of rights, human rights on that level? What could be overturned or repealed? Well, yeah, that, that is a huge next goal for the movement. Back when the Supreme Court was considering whether to do away with state laws banning same-sex couples from getting married, that was a huge culture war fight in this country over many years. Uh, that came to the Supreme Court in 2015. We got the ruling in Obergefell that said, uh, you know, under the Constitution, you can't bar same-sex couples from getting married. And uh, the religious right was you know, sputtering with outrage. And they just said from the beginning, this is not a legitimate decision. We will never accept it as a legitimate decision and we will fight to overturn it. Ryan Anderson, who was sort of the main anti-LGBTQ person at the Heritage Foundation, put out a book with a roadmap basically saying, listen, we had this strategy to overturn Roe and we're about to do it. And we will just use that same strategy to, uh, to overturn Obergefell. And, you know, mm-hmm. while Roe took 40 years, it could take them a lot less, given the people who are now sitting on the Supreme Court, especially once Roe is overturned and you have gutted the right to privacy, which is, you know, underlies a lot of important considerations. Mm-hmm. So, so marriage equality is definitely being targeted. It's on their, in their sites. But, you know, they also never accepted as legitimate the earlier decision in Lawrence v. Texas, which said, states couldn't criminalize consensual homosexual activity. You know, we had a lot of states in this country that still basically made gay people de facto criminals. And those laws were used to take people's children away from them. They're used to uh, fire people from state government jobs. So it's not like they were just there as some kind of symbolic moral Mm -hmm. thing. They really hurt people's lives. And uh, the same religious right, political and legal groups that fought marriage equality they all backed the right of states to do that. They all filed briefs saying that. So 
that's you know that's another place they could go and and again it's not entirely speculation one of the things that i started looking at when i was figuring out where they might go next was i started looking at some of the amicus briefs that were filed in dobbs the case that they're going to use to overturn uh, roe and some of the amicus speaks that came out of the religious right explicitly said lawrence and obergefell are as as illegitimate as outrageous as Roe, as lacking in constitutional authority. So they're already in there in legal briefs calling on the, this right-wing majority on the court now mm-hmm. to basically to eliminate uh, legal protections and legal equality for LGBTQ people. You know, And at the same time, we're seeing the states pushing more and more legislation. So that's where you see these strategies kind of repeating themselves, right? You've got this anti-trans legislation we had some states trying to um, uh, limit, you know, say, okay, you have to let gay couples get married, but we don't have to offer them all the same rights that uh, heterosexual married couples get. So there's going to be the same kind of thing where they use the strategy of pushing restrictions at the state level to give the courts an opportunity to uh, roll back the clock. We were mentioning R.J. Rushduni before. For those that don't know who he was, the father of Christian Reconstructionism, he was pretty extreme in some of his views. It's really interesting, though. I've been tweeting back and forth with someone who's who's a, apparently a Christian Reconstructionist, and there are people who are absolute Christian Reconstructionists, and this person is advocating for a theonomy, which is, in Rush Dooney's view, the society where you have the Old Testament law as the law of the land. And I was asking this person, do you really want to live in a theonomic society? And they came back and said, yeah, absolutely. You know, and that seems to be the argument that a rising tide lifts all boats. You know, so Peter, Christians running the show, Christians in charge of America or the world, God's going to be blessing everything. What a wonderful utopian existence. You know, Rush Dooney, the idea filters through that we should be living in a Christian society. What's wrong with that? Why doesn't that work? Yeah, and the hardcore um, Christian reconstructionists will admit that that includes religious liberty. They want mm. religious liberty in, until they have the power to eliminate it, you know? So, I mean, that's that's actually very terrifying. And and I think, fortunately, at this point, uh, even most of the hardcore religious right and dominions don't uh, embrace theonomy. For example, most of them would not support the death penalty for gay people. Some would. But um, you're right that that strain of the movement is still out there, still has, you know, publications and... Uh, you know, on social media, people can build movements on extreme uh, viewpoints, as we've absolutely. seen from the recent shootings. It's um, still there. Yeah, absolutely. The Buffalo shooting, you've got another extremist who's acting out. To what extent was he influenced by the alt-right, which is now increasingly in bed with the Christian right, militia groups? I mean, it's all kind of part and parcel of a big toxic mess. Yeah, you know, and one of the other things that I, I think we're going to see, you know, the way that um, the Roe Wade, the Roe v. Wade debate has has been, is that the right has said this is something the court should never have done. This this was should have always been left to the states, and that we're going getting rid of Roe is just returning it to the states, and then we'll have a fifty state battleground. And you know, there's already a number of states that have virtually banned Roe. There's a number of states that have passed trigger laws mm-hmm. so that that'll go into effect the moment Roe is overturned. That would basically ban abortion, but uh, and so then, you know, you have you have, you know, advocates for uh, reproductive choice starting to figure out how you can plan where there are states that um, support abortion rights, how you can get women and, and trans people needing care, you know, to those states. How can you, you know, all those things are being discussed. But I don't think the, the right is really going to be happy with a 50 state patchwork. They're going to go for a national ban on abortion. And they've been pretty clear about that. Um, and again, one of the amicus briefs uh, filed in Dobbs, and not by a, a fringe character, by Robert George, who is a central, he's at Princeton University, he's a central strategist of the religious right, of the anti-LGBTQ right. He basically said in his brief to the court, the court should recognize that under the 14th Amendment, there are personhood and citizenship rights from the moment of conception, you know, from the moment an egg is fertilized. And that therefore every state is required to treat abortion under its homicide laws. And again, this is not 
coming from anyone who is by all a fringe figure in the movement, but a central strategist for the religious right is, is arguing to the Supreme Court that uh, under the constitution, states have no right to allow abortion, but they have to be required to treat it as homicide. And if they don't, Congress has to step in and do that. So this idea that they're gonna some, somehow stop with federalism, with some states being sort of sanctuaries for people who need abor abortion, that's not gonna happen. It's straight out of a handmaid's tale. It seems to be happening more and more. In fact, there was an article just the other day in the Atlantic, I think it was by Margaret Atwood. And she's saying, my God, <laughs> I wrote A Handmaid's Tale as a dystopian novel of a, a future that could not possibly happen. And she turned around and said, uh, it's happening now. It's actually happening. So what can we do? That's my last question. We feel I feel powerless. I mean, over here in, in the UK, my British friends are asking me, what the hell is going on? You guys are going backwards compared to the rest of the progressive world. What the hell is happening? And I'm trying to explain it all, but I feel like we're, we're powerless. Is there anything we can do to stop it or fight back or do anything about what's happening? Well, there's no simple way right now because they have the court. Mm -hmm. You know, they have the power to do this. And so we are going to have to be prepared to really fight it out at the state level to mobilize people. I mean, one of the things that I think is in our behalf or is one of the unfortunate reasons we got where we were is that most people just didn't believe the risk, the threat was real. I mean, time and time again, even though we knew what these people were saying, a lot of Americans just didn't believe that they would ever see Roe just overturned and see this right stripped away, you know, a right that's been in place for 50 years. So we've got two generations of people who've grown up in this country with the right to legal access to abortion. And so people just didn't really see it as a threat. Now that the threat is very clear, and now that we're gonna see the consequences and we're gonna see people dying, for lack of care and dying because in desperation they get, you know, go to um, unsafe, unsanitary uh, options. We're gonna, I think we're gonna see a political shift and hopefully, you know, that's, it's just gonna be a long slog because we have, to, we have to elect people at the state level, we have to elect people at the national level who are gonna try to minimize the damage that the court is doing until the, you know, until we can get a shift on the court. So it's, it's, it's gonna be a lot of work at the local level to get, you know, very practical to get resources to people who need care and to help them find the care they need. And it's going to be a long-term political and legal strategy to overcome this, this huge power shift that has taken place. Again, you know, think about how many, how few votes in several states let Trump get elected in 2016. And now we have this enormous shift to the right based largely on his three Supreme Court justices. It's really, it's, it's stunning. And there's, there's not a quick fix. There's a lot of work to be done in the long fix, and there's going to be a lot of harm done in the meantime. Absolutely. Like I say, women are going to die, especially disproportionately women of color, African-American women who already struggle to get access to health care, unintended pregnancies, and all the rest of it. So and there's another gonna, component to this whole story, isn't there? They're going to die, and they're also going to find themselves like monitored and punished. You know, we have yeah, exactly. people, you know, women being arrested for having a miscarriage if somebody suspects that suspects that somehow they did something to cause it. And you know, we've seen this in other countries where women are are charged with murder and 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 jailed because they have a miscarriage. And so, mm -hmm. you know, people are saying, well, if we get laws like that, does that mean the government's going to like start screening every woman who's pregnant? I mean, it's it's uh it's frightening. It is and frightening. Think about, it, yeah. you, it does lead you right into the handmaid's tale. It really does, because you mentioned these trigger laws, because as we're doing this recording now, it probably will change when this episode comes out, but there's at least 26 states that have trigger laws, maybe more later, but some of them are completely landlocked, like Tennessee. They All the states around them also have trigger laws that are going to be passed. So let's imagine you're a poor African-American woman in the, in the middle of Tennessee who's pregnant who wants an abortion with an unintended pregnancy or even the pregnancy that is threatening your life uh, for medical complications, how far do you have to go physically in terms of distance to a state that allows abortion? And then you could, as you say, be arrested for going and having an abortion in another state or even being the person who drives her to the clinic three or four states away at huge expense. I mean, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? 
Well, yeah, and you, as you said, you know, some of the states now, some of the legislators that are so intent on denying women this choice, they're trying to pass laws that would make it a crime for them to leave the state and to exactly. go get care in another state. And now I'm not a lawyer. I personally think those laws will not hold up under up. the Constitution because the right to travel across state lines is it's a fundamental right. On the other hand, uh, with the court we have now, I don't know where they will draw their lines, particularly no. with, if they have people telling them that they should be moving in the direction of a national ban would make which would make all of that uh, moot. It's so ironic. I know we need to wrap it up, but I can remember when I was an evangelical, they also used to use that term slippery slope. You know, they would say, we're on a slippery slope, ladies and gentlemen, this country's heading downhill. Every time a little another more liberal progressive law gets passed, we're on that slippery slope to whatever, you know, destruction and judgment and everything else. But now I'm seeing it the other way around. We're on we're the ones who are on a slippery slope because where does this thing end? I don't see this ending up in a good place uh, at all. So this is an ironic, you know, change of, of scenery for me <laughs> now that I'm an ex-evangelical looking at it from the outside. We're the ones on the slippery slope. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's a scary thing. Anyway, well, so here's a question then. I know we're wrapping it up, but if people want to find you, obviously they can look up, look you up on the Right Wing Watches uh, website. You watch the YouTube videos that you guys put up all the time. How can people find you on social media? Yeah, our social media channel on, on Twitter is at Right Wing Watch. I am at, at Pete Mont. And Right Wing Watch is also on Facebook. Find us any of those places. And then we it. do have a lot, of, a lot of content on our YouTube channel going back quite a few years so oh yeah it's it's good watching we get to get little snippets of what some of these crazy extremists actually say in context on their live streams and rants and everything else so thank you once again peter sorry we took so long to get back together but i've absolutely had a great time chatting with you thanks for bringing us up to date on what's going on on the supreme court we'll have to watch this really closely so let's keep in touch thank you so much peter thanks for having me back